Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Congratulations, true crime addicts. We've survived another week. It's Friday, January 7th, 2022. And these are the top true crime stories in the world. Uh, Just yesterday, big anniversary. The anniversary of the uh, insurrection on the uh, United States Congress a year ago today. You saw those uh, boneheads. March into the Capitol, some wearing buffalo heads and horns, others carrying zip ties and pepper spray. Hundreds of people storming the Capitol after a speech by uh, former President Donald Trump, urging them to march towards Congress. We covered that all last week. I'm not going to go into every detail, but big anniversary this week was the anniversary of the insurrection. Um, What's worth mentioning is this uh, nice article done by Daniel Dale and Marshall Cohen over at CNN, where they fact-check some of the conspiracy theories that have come out of the insurrection itself, or as Fox News calls it, a little dust-up. Uh, <laughs> uh, one one rumor, or not rumor, but one, one thing that gets passed around social media when talking about the insurrection is some people will say, well, these people didn't have any weapons. It was a peaceful protest, and we're allowed to go into Congress. Nobody had weapons. That is categorically false in so many different ways. Uh, Here, I'm going to read you a quote. People who illegally entered Capitol grounds during the insurrection were armed with a wide variety of weapons, including guns, stun guns, knives, batons, baseball hats, axes, and chemical sprays. Another point that has been lost over the year is that uh, there are some people that believe that the people there that day that busted into the Capitol were protesting a rigged election and that it was fair game because the election was stolen 
from them. But time and time again, we've seen that this is this is also completely false. And, uh, you know, uh, to remind you, the election was not rigged. There's no evidence that the election was rigged for Biden at all. Um, in fact, the only voter fraud that was found uh, were, were Trumpers, like the ones that were arrested last week in uh, Florida, the retirees from the retirement community, the villages, seems to have been uh, one, one guy voted in two different states. Uh, the villages, by the way, just slightly north of uh, Del Boca Vista. Uh, other people uh, since then have said uh, that it was a false flag, that it was really Antifa that broke into the, the Capitol building, um, pretending to be Trumpers, MAGA people. It was just Antifa. It was really the far left terrorists that were setting the Trumpers up to fail. Again, no evidence of this whatsoever. And everybody that's been arrested for storming the Capitol has close ties to um, Trump organizations or domestic terrorist organizations uh, throughout the, the country. Uh, I would urge you, if you're interested in this historic event and you want to do your part, uh, check out this website, seditionhunters.org. It's a really interesting use of crowdsourcing where they have pictures up from uh, everybody that posted on social media and videos and news reports showing the people that went into the Capitol building and they've broken them down by person and they want people to check the site so that if you recognize somebody, you can then turn their name over to the FBI. This is how hundreds of people have already been arrested. Uh, but there still remains uh, dozens and dozens of unidentified um, seditionists uh, on that website. So if you want to help, seditionhunters.org. All right, enough about the insurrection. The uh, good news, the spine collector has been caught you guys heard about the spine collector? It sounds like uh, one of the big bads from Bones, doesn't it? This guy wasn't a murderer, though. Um, here's the deal. Uh, for years, there have been whispers about Union around Union Square in Manhattan, in the, uh, the coffee shops and restaurants and pubs frequented by the literati, the agents and editors uh, of the New York publishing houses. Rumors of a scammer in their midst, a fraudster, because somebody, for years, at least since 2017, somebody has been emailing famous authors, and not so famous authors, and posing as their editors, sometimes using emails that are, that look in, that are indistinguishable from their editor's emails, uh, email addresses, that is. And what were they doing? They were they were emailing these their authors and saying, "Hey, can you send me the latest draft of the manuscript that you're working on?" And they were doing this. They were able to trick some really high profile people, people like authors like Margaret Atwood, The Handmaid's Tale, Stieg Larsson's estate. Stieg Larsson, of course, died, but uh, he wrote the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. And there are now other authors that are writing that series: uh, Sally Rooney, Ethan Hawke, hundreds. Hundreds of authors fell for this scam, and they sent the manuscript to this person that didn't exist. And 
no, it, it, slowly it got out that the scam was going on, but nobody knew who this was. Like who was who was scamming these these authors? Um, it, it was weird because, you know, once he got these manuscripts, once he got Ma- Margaret Atwood's new book, it wasn't like he he leaked it onto the website or onto the World Wide Web or the internet. You know, oh man, I, I sound old, don't I? Um, it wasn't leaked. There was no demand for ransom. It was just somebody collecting these manuscripts. What in the world was going on? Now, um, my my other life uh, beyond true crime. Uh, I'm a novelist, and I have a foot in the door in the world of of literature. Uh, back in 2012, um, an editor uh, named Sarah Creighton published my first novel, The Man from Primrose Lane, and she's, she was set up as an imprint at uh, Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux, which is like a fancy publisher house in uh, New York, home of uh, Tom Wolfe and Jonathan Franzen and others. Um, now, when my book came out, Primrose Lane, even before it was published, it leaked. It was a leak, and uh, a lot of this is this is standard. Like this happens all the time, which I think is why nobody paid this guy much attention for so long because books are leaked all the time. It's kind of like a don't ask, don't tell type of thing. But when you turn in a manuscript, a lot of times it gets leaked to um, film rights people or television rights people who are looking for the next big story. Uh, to purchase, and it usually works out well for the author. But this this is not one of those things. It was not a, like a leak from inside. Something weirder was going on. Uh, and I have to say, I when I heard about the story at first, and there's a an excellent article in Vulture, by the way, on Vulture, um, a story by Reeves Weedman that you should read. And uh, the link, of course, as always, is in the further reading section in the liner notes of this podcast. But um, something weird happened to me back in like 2000, I think it was like 2015, uh, maybe 2016. But I got an email from Sarah, my editor, at same email address. And it said, hey, have you seen the latest draft? And it looked like it was a manuscript that she had sent to me. And when I clicked on it, it asked for my password. And I thought it was like a you know, some sort of secret Google Drive extension or something that she had sent me for this draft or whatever. And so I quickly entered in my password. And as soon as I did, it hit me. I'm like, oh, my God, this I think this is a scam. And I emailed her right away. And she's like, no, no I, I didn't say you anything. I didn't send it to you. So um, somebody was trying to fish me back in 2016. I Part of me wonders if it was him, but it doesn't quite fit his MO. I, I'm if I had to guess, it was one of the loonies from the Moore Murray case. But uh, but who knows? Who knows? Uh, anyways, just this past week on Wednesday, a couple days ago, FBI arrested 29-year-old Filippo Bernardini at JFK Airport. Uh, he, um, I think, was an Italian citizen uh, working in the U.K., and he had flown into New York where the FBI promptly arrested this 29-year-old. And uh, myself and um, other people I know in, in, in the literature world, we always suspected that it was an agent that was behind this, like a, like a, like a real deal agent. Um, and it's, it's, we were close. Um, Filipino Bernardini has been identified as the spine collector. He's been charged with wire fraud, 
an identity theft. Uh, turns out he worked for Simon & Schuster in the UK. That's a big publisher. Uh, where he said he worked as a rights coordinator. He was abruptly suspended by Simon & Schuster. The publisher is not accused of any wrongdoing. Um, but it's it's weird. And, and you go back to motive. Like, what was this guy's motive? Because he wasn't making money off of it, not directly anyway. Um, so what was he doing with these manuscripts? Well, if you're an agent, if you're a rights coordinator, if you're somebody that's working for one of these major publishers... Just like anywhere else in the corporate world, information is valuable. And what he was getting was was insider information from all the big clients of all the other big publishers. He knew what was coming out. He knew what was good, what wasn't. And uh, it's likely he used that to his benefit somehow. They're still trying to piece it together. Um, in, I'm, I'm trying to come up with an analogy. I think the best one I can I can think of to make this make sense uh, to those that, that are outside of the publishing world, um, think of like an assistant manager at a, at a sports, you know, with a sports team, like the assistant manager of the Browns or something. God bless him. Um, this would be like the assistant manager stealing the playbooks of uh, the, the other teams, their, their, their competition. Um, doesn't directly make money for him, but it allows him to get some advantage over the competition. Something like that might have been going on. Uh, go sports. So that's a, it's, a, it's a weird story. It's, it's and a little bit of a departure from the gore that we get in, uh, <laughs> in true crime this week sometimes. So um, not likely this guy is going to go away for life or anything. I'm wondering how long he could possibly get for uh, for those crimes, the uh, the the last top story this week um, is is weird because it seems like it should be a little bit bigger story than it is, uh, but Kim Kardashian's manager was murdered in December, uh, right around the time of, of, of right before Christmas, um, and maybe it was because of the holidays. We didn't hear much about this, but it's kind of a big deal. This is a 55, sorry, 55-year-old celebrity manager, Angie Kukoski, uh, who was reported missing December 23rd. And there, her body was found shortly thereafter in a car in Simi Valley, which is north of L.A. The car was parked uh, on the property of a relative of Angie's boyfriend, 49-year-old Jason Barker. According to Variety, Kukoski was a manager uh, at, at, at times for people like Nicki Minaj, Kanye West, also the estate of Tupac Shakur. Uh, she, was, she was a heavy hitter. Barker was arrested, charged with premeditated murder. Everybody that's seen the details of the crime uh, seemed severely affected by the brutality of it. He's charged with pre premeditated murder as along with one count of torture, and he's being held on $3 million bond. The police are saying, police and prosecutors are saying that he stabbed her, hit her, strangled her, then drove her body to a different location in an attempt to hide it. He's due in court on Wednesday of next week. Those are the top true crime stories. Um, after the break, some really interesting news in the world of genetic genealogy as well as updates in the Gabby Petito and Alex Murdaugh 
cases. We'll be back in two and two. And we're back with Our House, starring Wilford Brimley. Uh, Some updates on cold cases. Small update in the Gabby Petito case this week. The parents of Brian Laundrie, you'll know him. Uh, He's the douche canoe, as they say, who killed Gabby, uh, left behind a notebook near his body, which was collected by the FBI. Uh, Brian Laundrie's parents want that notebook. They are taking charge of his estate and assets such as they are, um, and they believe that inside – some people believe that inside that notebook might be details about an account in which uh, Brian kept $20,000. That's a lot of money for a kid that age, by the way. Uh, And he apparently had this $20,000 in a bank account despite spending about $1,000 using Gabby's credit card after her murder, stand-up guy. According, and this is according to the Sun newspaper. Um, so the parents are trying to settle his estate. Uh, they are looking at this $20,000. They also want to find out what's in that notebook. Some people have surmised that maybe Brian had written down his final thoughts. Is it maybe a confession? Whatever it is they wanted from the FBI. Uh, I'm guessing the FBI is not having that and fighting it the best they can. Good for them. Crime Online is reporting that physical evidence has been found that ties Alex Murdaugh to the murders of his wife and son. Uh, His wife Maggie and his son Paul were shot to death at a family hunting lodge on June 7th. This is when Paul, at the time, was waiting trial uh, for a boating accident in which a young girl was left dead. Paul was piloting the boat at the time. And that was like probably the the beginning of the downfall of the Murdoch family. Maggie, just a couple days before her murder, and this is also a possible motive, Maggie was uh, went to a forensic uh, analyst, um, an accountant, to get their personal finances audited. Wanted to find out exactly how much money they had, probably in anticipation for Paul's expensive trial coming up. Um, But as we know now, Alex Murdaugh had been misappropriating funds. Uh, He was a lawyer and and he was taking some of his client's money without giving it over to them, without reporting it. So did she find evidence of this? Is that what escalated to murder? We don't know. But news uh, news sources online are reporting that physical evidence has been found tying Alex Murdoch to those murders. I guess we'll have to wait and see. The police so far have been mum, uh, but that's a, that's one of those cases that keeps on giving. Uh, if you're interested in unsolved mysteries and, and cold cases, I've mentioned this before, but you should check out the website uncovered.com. They um, released a statement this week saying they now have over 10,000 cases searchable online, and it's a really wonderful website, uh, easy to use, and uh, many of these cases also come with interactive maps and very ordered timelines. They have an excellent page for the Moore Murray case, uh, for instance. Uh, some really bad news in the world of genetic genealogy this week. The first case using genetic genealogy has been overturned. Um, 
I hope I worded that right. It's the first case that has been overturned that that used genetic genealogy, not the first case, which would have been Golden State Killer. Um, This, it was overturned not because of the science involved, but for jury bias, according to Oxygen.com. This involves uh, the case of the 1987 murders that had been unsolved for, um, what, 30-some years. This is the murders of 20-year-old Jay Cook and 18-year-old Tanya Van Koylenberg. Koylenberg. They were high school sweethearts from uh, Victoria, British Columbia. And on November 18, 1987, Jay and Tanya left Canada, came down to Seattle. Uh, I guess they were going to retrieve some parts for Jay's father, some um, refrigerator parts or something like that. They had come down to Seattle for a trip, and they were going to see the city while they were there. Uh, Then they vanished. Six days later, Tanya's body was found on a steep embankment. Her pants had been removed. Her bra had been pulled up. She had been beaten and shot in the head. A couple days later, they found Jay's body in rural Snohomish County. He had been strangled by a dog collar, by someone using a dog collar and twine. And a pack of smokes had been shoved down his throat. Even though this was 1987, the detectives were looking ahead. They collected DNA from the scene, from the van, and from Tanya's body. Flash forward to 2018, genetic genealogists linked that DNA to one William Earl Talbot II. Back in 87, he had been working as a truck driver, lived near where Jay's body was found. Uh, He was uh, sentenced, found guilty and sentenced, I believe life in prison. And then uh, just last week, um, it was overturned because his his lawyers had argued that the trial was unfair because one of the jurors was biased. And this goes back to that voir dire part of the the whole process where the lawyers uh, kind of run through the backgrounds of the prospective jurors and they're allowed to eliminate some. And, and the people that pass stay. Apparently, there was a juror during voir dire who said she had suffered trauma as a kid, grew up in a violent house. She was afraid that she wouldn't be able to objectively see any sort of innocence in this case. Um, the judge let her serve regardless. And uh, the appeals court overturned both murder convictions because of this one juror. The state will uh, try to appeal. And if that fails... They intend to retry the case, of course. You know, if you're looking for strange crimes that you wouldn't find elsewhere in the mainstream media, in the the lamestream media, as they say, uh, you might want to check out Reddit. Uh, Every once in a while, I come across a bizarre story I'd never heard of in the the realm of true crime, uh, disappearances and murders. uh, And this one is just wacky. Uh, This involves the disappearance of Granger Taylor. This happened on November 29, 1980. Involves 32-year-old Granger Taylor, who disappeared from Vancouver Island, but not before leaving a strange note behind. He left this for his parents, who he he was living on their farm at the time. Dear mother and father, the note reads, I've gone away to walk aboard an alien spaceship, as recurring dreams assured a 42-month interstellar voyage to explore the vast universe 
then return. I'm leaving behind all my possessions to you, as I will no longer require the, the use of any. Please use the instructions in my will as a guide to help. Love, Granger. Uh, when the parents checked his will, they found that he had crossed out death and put departure. That's according to a, an article in Vice. Link at the end. Uh, the back of the note had a map that's never really been decoded. Uh, and then Granger disappeared. Never to be seen again. Not only did he disappear, his truck disappeared. It was a very distinct truck. It was a pink Datsun. He and the truck vanished, never to be seen again. Before he disappeared, in the, in the months leading up to his disappearance, he built the replica of a spaceship on his parents' farm, a little flying saucer that had TV and satellite. Sometimes he would sleep in it. And uh, his friend said that he had dreams that aliens were coming for him. His family later told journalists that uh, Granger was doing a lot of acid at the time. Now, that goes a long way to explain his odd behavior, right? But but if you're a fan of psilocybin, and I've I, I got to be honest, I've never tried it. I not for lack of trying or or wanting. I, I believe I'll do that for another podcast here soon. Um, but people that that trip on acid or uh, ingest these magic mushrooms. A lot of them come back with a very similar story about seeing mechanical fairies, sometimes described as mechanical aliens, who send them messages telepathically uh, and seem to be interfering with the lives of humans. So that is that what he was talking about? Did he see one of these mechanical fairies that very well could be you know part of our inner subconscious coming up because you're tripping you know who can say any of that's reliable but anyways i, I thought it was interesting because a lot of people see these things um years later locals found human remains at a blast site not far from his house there were some particles of bones and the remnants of a truck although it has not been conclusively identified as that pink Datsun that he was driving, nor have the bones been definitively linked or tested to find that they are, in fact, Granger. But that, that could be, you know, the, the the theory is that he blew himself in the truck up with dynamite. I don't know if I believe it. Uh, and let's, finally, let's check the charts uh, through chartable.com. This is uh, the charts of the top true crime podcasts of the moment and there's a new number one sorry crime junkie the number one podcast in true crime this week was families who kill i had never heard of it here's the write-up it sounds interesting in the era of some of the most heinous serial killers of all time one murderous family went curiously unnoticed the mccrary's mccrary's yeah Led by a psychopathic patriarch and his cunning son-in-law, this Texas clan roamed the country robbing, kidnapping, and killing up to 20 people, most of them taken from donut shops. That's the real crime. Families Who Killed the Donut Shop Murders recounts the wild and deeply disturbing story of an unhinged family. Check it out. Families Who Kill. 
Uh, finally, don't forget to check out, uh, you know, touch base with me on Repod. We can talk about this episode and any other true crime tips you might have, upcoming episodes, other ideas for um, recaps or weird stories. I'll be on there. And uh, as always, uh, thanks for tuning in. I'm glad to be back to our regularly scheduled True Crime Weekly podcasts after the holidays. Here we are in 2022, still no flying cars. But it is a Friday, and in the words of the incomparable Murray Saul, that means we got to, 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 True Crime This Week is a Fearful Symmetry production. Our theme music is Trash Town Boogie by Mr. Smith, used under a Creative Commons license for use in this show. All sources are listed in the liner notes at the end of this episode. If you like the cut of my jib, please check out my other podcast, Philosophy of Crime. Unless quoted directly from a source, all content should be considered the opinion of the host. That's me, James Renner. See you next week.